Can you imagine what life would be like without one of your five senses? It's through these five senses that we humans interact with the world. So losing one of them would drastically alter our experience in life. I think we can agree losing touch or taste or smell, not that big of a deal, but losing your hearing, your sight, that's a total game changer. That's going to change life forever. And most of us can't truly imagine what life would be like without being able to see or hear. And of the two, I think losing your sight is more drastic. However, losing your hearing is a special case because especially from birth, you also lose most often another ability, and that is speech. Those who are deaf from birth, it's not like they can't use their vocal cords or they can't make sounds. It's just that they can't make sounds in a meaningful way. That's because as children, we learn speech by mimicking sounds we hear and then we attach meaning to those sounds. But those who are deaf from a young age, unfortunately, can't do that. They cannot hear to mimic sounds and they cannot hear themselves to see if they're mimicking those sounds right. This is why if you lose your hearing at a young age, you oftentimes lose the ability to speak, which is our primary method of communication. And so not being able to hear or speak, it sounds like a a truly difficult situation, obviously. Thankfully, though, there is sign language. Normally in the development of speech or oral language, we attach meaning to sounds. But for sign language, you're attaching meaning to hand motions. Other than that difference, the languages are pretty much the same. There's a vocabulary, there's a grammar, there's an alphabet. And uh, I think all of us know a little bit of sign language, intuitively. You're out to lunch with a friend, you're about to eat this big sandwich, you take a massive bite, and right as you take a bite, your friend just happens to ask you, so do you like your sandwich? People always ask me questions when my mouth is full. And so you could take a minute to chew and give them an answer, or you could just give them a thumbs up, thumbs down, and we all know what it means. It's a little bit of sign language. Now, real sign language, though, is obviously way more complex. There are thousands of signs, just like there are thousands of sounds. Some of the signs are mimes, which you're basically acting out, like the sign for baby is cradling your arms. But most of the signs are just arbitrary. It's a little hard that sign language is not international. There are actually hundreds of different sign languages around the world, just like there are hundreds of uh, oral languages. I've even read that in America, really no two people sign exactly the same. There's always little differences. It's also interesting to note that sign language is not new. Those in the ancient world had their own versions. Records of sign language go back to the 5th century B.C. And pretty much any time there's a deaf community somewhere, they're going to get together and they're going to form a way to communicate, some language of some sorts. In the ancient world, it's not like you can grab a pen and paper to express yourself You can't text message people, so they really needed a sign language. Now, why do I bring this all up? That's because today in Mark, we have a very special story to close out Mark chapter 7. In fact, you can open your Bibles there now, if you haven't already, to Mark chapter 7. Mark, as you know, it's the shortest gospel, and most of the stories that Mark records can actually also be found in Matthew and Luke. There's only a few stories in Mark that can't be found anywhere else And what we have today is one of those. Our passage at the end of chapter 7 features a man who is both deaf and mute. And this man is brought to Jesus for healing. But before Jesus does anything for him, he wants to communicate with him. 
is a message for him. And so what does he do? What does Jesus do? Well, we're going to find that he resorts to a little sign language. There's a little bit of signing with the man. So, hey, look, we know Jesus, he can speak Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew. And I guess we can add to that list just a little bit of sign language because that's what he does. First, with his hands, Jesus paints a picture for the man of what he's going to do for him. He's going to heal him. He's going to change his life forever. And in the same way, the passage we have serves as a picture for all of us of what the Lord does for us. He too opens our ears spiritually. He too changes our lives forever. We come to witness again the life-changing power of Jesus, the Messiah, in our passage. It's a special passage since it's so unique in Mark. It's a precious passage. And it's short enough, actually, that we can read through it now up front, which we usually don't have time to do. So let's do that now. Mark chapter 7. We're going to read through up front here, verses 31 through 37 to finish the chapter. Mark chapter 7. Let's start at verse 31. It says, again, he, Jesus, went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hands on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. Looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephaphtha, which means be opened. And his ears were opened. And the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. I'm not sure if you picked up on it, but this passage, these few verses, they're riddled with verbs, a ton of action words all over the place, showing Jesus in action. In a short span, he actually does quite a lot. And that's that's actually a good way to split this text up to make it easier to follow. We're going to take another pass, of course, through this passage, trying to dig deeper into this story. And to help you follow along, here's here's ten actions of Jesus that change this this man's life forever. It's a good way to split this up. Let me show you ten actions of Jesus that changed this man's life forever. Let's follow along now. Starting Starting with some travel. Number one, Jesus travels. Number one, Jesus travels. Look at verse 31 again. It says, Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. And you can stop there. This is where we pick up from last week, our passage from last week, where we learn that Jesus, he's left the territory of the Jews and he's going into Gentile land. He's been in Galilee for over a year. And pretty soon he's going to head south to Judea, eventually to Jerusalem, and he's going to die. But before he goes there, before he heads south, we see him now head north. He goes really far north, deep into Gentile territory. He's taking a long detour, and the first stop, he and the disciples, they go 50 miles north, northeast, to the region of Tyre. And that's what we learned about last week, the, the city and the region of Tyre. And this whole place was known for its paganism and idolatry. You'd find statues and temples and shrines to their gods everywhere, in every city, every place. It's just the rank idolatry and the 
ungodliness that plagued Israel centuries earlier, it was still alive and well in the region of Tyre. The only thing that changed was the name of the gods. It went from Baal to Zeus and, and, all, and so on. This is a fiercely pagan region. It's definitely not the place your average Jew would go to for a vacation, for some time off. But this is where Jesus goes, and we wonder, why is he going there? He has no business up in the north with this totally pagan region. Well, he goes to escape. He's trying to get away from the demands of the Jewish crowds in Galilee. Because at this point, every time Jesus goes somewhere, the crowd forms. You've got thousands of people just show up because they want something from him. They want bread or they want healing. And he can't get away. And the problem is he really needs to get away because this is a critical time. He needs to spend some quantity and quality time with his twelve. Because Jesus knows the crowds, they're fickle. They come, they're going to go. But his twelve, the disciples, they're the ones who are going to stick around. They're the ones who are going to carry on his work after he's gone and lay the foundation of the church. But they're not ready. They need some training. They need time. But he can't find that time because of the crowds. And so that's why he takes his disciples north. Like we learned last time in Mark 7, verse 24, they were trying to escape notice. They didn't even want to be seen. This is to be a, a private traveling seminar for the twelve. And perhaps though Jesus took his disciples into Gentile land for another reason, to teach them a special lesson, because as we also learned last time, that even the disciples, they're still holding on to this really deep Jewish prejudice against Gentiles. They still hate Gentiles. And so when this woman comes, this Gentile, Canaanite, Syrophoenician woman, comes to Jesus desperate for some help, even though she displays real faith. Remember how the disciples respond? They just get rid of her. Just send her away. They don't want anything to do with her, even though she has real faith. But that's not a part of Christ's plan. And the work he came to do doesn't only have Jews in mind, and he's expanding their borders right now. He does minister to the woman, and in so doing, he foreshadows that his ministry doesn't know borders. It's going to cross borders. It's not just for Israel. There is a place for Gentiles in God's plan of salvation. He makes it clear. He came for the Jews first and foremost. That's part of the plan. But through the Jews, the plan was also to reach the Gentiles, to reach the nations. And that that plan is being started right here. He's the Savior, not just of Israel, but also of the world. Well, the disciples, they need some more alone time with Jesus, so they keep moving. After they get to Tyre, they're already 50 miles out. They, they keep going further north. So after being recognized in Tyre, they go, verse 31 says, to the region of Sidon, or to the city of Sidon. That's another 20 miles up the coast on the Mediterranean Sea. Sidon's another very old city. It's as old as Israel itself, and it's always been pagan. They never conquered it. It was a, it was a stronghold of the Canaanites, and even at this time, it was still just a fiercely pagan city. This far north, though, now he's really far north, he's not going to have too much trouble being unnoticed by the people. It tells you a lot, though, that Jesus did no miracles here. In Tyre, in Sidon, maybe just a few things here and there, but there was no widespread ministry. There was no widespread teaching ministry. We learned nothing that he ta- spoke to the crowds. No widespread healing ministry. He just kind of came, flew under the radar, stuck with his 12, and, and left. 
And we learn from Matthew 11:21, 21, he, he did no real meaningful miracles there. It just goes to show you, his, this mission was not a, a mission trip to the Gentiles. His focus is on imparting to the twelve life-changing truths. They have such an important work ahead of them. After Jesus is gone, they're it. They're the pillars of the church. But they're not ready. This work, it's going to take up their lives, their entire lives. It's going to cost them their lives. They're all going to die because of this. This is serious. And they need to be ready. And so this is going to be a long trip. This was not a, a weekend getaway where Jesus take, takes his 12 away for some instruction. This is going to be a long trip. They're already 70 miles north and it continues. We learn that after passing through Sidon, Jesus and the 12, they return back down to the Sea of Galilee, but they go to the region of Decapolis. Now Decapolis is to the east and the south of the Sea of Galilee. So this means that Jesus started this journey on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he ended his journey on the southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee with a little 120-mile detour in between, a big horseshoe all the way around. And, you know, if his goal was just to get to the other side of the lake, he could have taken a boat. He could have walked on water faster to the other side of the lake. But as we've been saying, this was meant to be a long, slow, purposeful journey. It's going through a lot of mountainous terrain, it would have taken weeks, if not months, but that was all on purpose. This was some one on twelve time with the disciples. Now it's pretty amazing to think about this journey. In just a few verses we see weeks and months go by. It makes me wonder, first, you know, when was the last time you took a hundred and twenty mile hike through the mountains, wearing only sandals? And how long did it take you? I wonder. And second, I also wonder what did Jesus do? What did he say during this time? We don't know. All those nights by the fire with his disciples, all those water breaks, what did they talk about? Did he do some miracles just for them? We really have no idea. There's no record of this. We do know, though, like John says in his gospel, the last verse of the gospel of John, 21, verse 25, John said, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. There's a lot of things that Jesus said and did we have no record of. They're just for them. It does pique our curiosity, but nonetheless, at the time being though, Jesus, after this long trip, and who knows what went on, he's back. He's back in the Holy Land. He's, he's by the Sea of Galilee. But now though, he's, in that, he's on the Gentile side, Decapolis. That word means ten cities. You can probably guess why they called it Ten Cities. It's because the region featured ten prominent cities. They're all east of the Jordan, Jordan River. There's no mention that Jesus actually goes to these ten cities. Right now, he's by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. But it's important that you know that when you cross the lake, everything changes. The north, the western side of the Sea of Galilee, everything west of the Jordan. It's, It's largely Jewish land. Some Gentiles, but it's a largely Jewish population. You get to the eastern side, get to Decapolis, and you're in Gentile territory once again. Just like Tyre, just like Sidon, this is a Gentile-dominated and pagan-saturated place. Make matters worse, Decapolis, it's actually the retirement community of Alexander's the Great Army. 
You all know Alexander the Great, a couple hundred years before this, conquered most of the world. When all that battle was done, his soldiers, he promised them land, and this is what they got. They got the Decapolis. And so this is a largely Greek pagan area. There were some Jews here, but they were largely Hellenized. And that, words mean, that word means they, they assimilated into Greek culture. This came with worship of the many gods, worship of the Roman emperor. Each of these cities fe- featured a pagan temple. And let's just, let's just say that they had no real love for the Jews. On the eastern side of the lake, they didn't really care so much for the guys on the western side of the lake. But once again, we find here Jesus is. In this place, he really has no business, we would think. His focus is still on the twelve, but now in our passage we see, maybe for the first time in months, something happen. A crowd forms again. Most likely for the past couple of months he has not seen a crowd. He's just been alone with the twelve. But here he is, he's back, he's close by, and a crowd forms. According to Matthew in the parallel account, Jesus sees the crowd, he goes from the shore up onto a little hill to receive the crowd, and they start coming to him. And then once again they present to him their needs. And he does not turn them away. Instead, number two, Jesus listens. After a long travel, secondly, Jesus listens. Look at verse 32. It says, They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Matthew, he tells us about the crowd in general, and that the crowd is forming. But Mark... He chooses to single out one special person in this crowd. We learn about a man who's brought to Jesus. He's deaf and he speaks with difficulty, which means he's able to speak. He can make some sound. It's just that he's inarticulate. He's speech impaired. No one can really understand what he's saying, which tells us that almost certainly he lost his hearing at a very young age, such that it impaired his speech development. Now the tragedy is back then, if this were you, you were deaf and you couldn't speak, you were just lumped together with the mentally disabled, with the insane. They just thought you were crazy because you had no way to communicate and tell otherwise. And just just imagine what that would be like. In, In the thoughts of your mind, you're perfectly rational, you can think normally, but you can't hear, you can't speak, you can't communicate easily, and there's no pen and paper. So people just think you're crazy. And you can't do anything about it. That is tragic. That's what life was like for this community in the ancient world. Thankfully, though, this man had some friends. This is only saving grace at the time. Being deaf, being mute, seems like a very lonely situation. Seems like most of the time you're just left to the thoughts of your mind. And that's it. But thankfully he had some friends. We don't know who they are. We don't know how many there are. We just know, they know about Jesus, and they take their friend. Chances are, this, this deaf man, he didn't know anything about Jesus. It's hard enough to communicate with him, so he may not even know what's going on. He may have no idea, where are you guys taking me, what's going on? And they just drag him along. It says, literally, they throw him at the feet of Jesus. Touch him. Heal him. Somehow, these friends had heard about Jesus. The stories of his works, his healings, had made their way across the Sea of Galilee. Even into this Gentile region, word about Jesus was spreading. I think you can all agree. Just imagine you're really sick. You have some affliction. 
and you hear that this Jewish rabbi is, is miraculously healing people. Well, if he's in town, you're going to go see him. It doesn't matter that he's a Jew, you're a Gentile. You don't care. You just want that healing. So even in this Gentile territory, they, it doesn't matter. They are streaming to Jesus because they want a piece of this healing. As the day goes on, more and more Gentiles come to Jesus. They bring their sick. They lay them at the feet of Jesus. That's what Matthew tells us. These people, they've heard the stories. They know that Jesus heals people how? Just a touch. Just touches people. Touches the leper. It's gone. It's vanished. The blind person, the, the daughter, just it's just gone. He banishes sickness with the touch. And so they bring him to his feet, and they're like, just touch him. Touch our friends. Touch our, our family members. Heal. And that's what these friends want. They come to Jesus. We don't know how they heard about him. But they're asking for Jesus to touch their friend and heal him. Now this crowd, it's going to get big. What happens right after this? In the next passage we see, in the same place, same time, it's the feeding of the 4,000. That's these people. It's going to get into a big crowd. And that's just the men. For the first time, we see thousands of Gentiles go to Jesus. And it really does make us wonder, though, how did all these Gentiles hear about Jesus? He's not their Messiah. He's the Jewish Messiah. What, what do they know about him? How do they know about him? Jesus had not traveled far into the Decapolis before. He'd done no miracles there, no ministry there, except for one. Do you remember the one miracle that Jesus performed in Decapolis? It's back in Mark chapter 5. And when I remind you, It'll pop in your mind. Jesus, his disciples, they're on the western shore. They want to escape the crowds. So they hop in a boat. They go to the eastern shore. They land in the, the country of the Gerasenes. And they meet this, this madman, this raving lunatic, this man possessed by a legion of demons. And he confronts Jesus. Jesus confronts him back. And in time, Jesus delivers the man. He frees him from the legion of demons. He restores him to his right mind. You remember that now? So after the dust settled, after this man was restored to his right mind, do you remember what he wanted to do? He begged Jesus, like, can I follow you? He implored him, can I just come with you? Do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, no, you cannot follow me. Instead, Jesus said this, Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. Jesus said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. He said, You can follow me, but in a different way. You go back to your people and you just tell them, Tell them about me. Tell them how the Lord had mercy on you. And verse 20 says, And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis. What great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. After this, what did Jesus do? He got on the boat and he left. This was as far as Jesus ever got into Decapolis. He landed on the shore, met this one guy, performed one miracle and left. That's it. That's the furthest he ever went as far as we know into Decapolis. But now everyone knows about him over there. How? Well, we have to think that this, this demoniac did his job. At the least, he influenced people. We don't know if he went to all ten cities, but wherever he went, it appears he did what Jesus told him to do. 
He said, here's Jesus. Here's what he did for me. He had mercy on me. And he moved on. He just told people. The Gentiles were learning of the name of Jesus. Here in Mark chapter 7, and we don't really know if all these people heard from the demoniac, but one way or another, they had heard about Jesus. They get the drift. He's a healer. He's a miracle worker. Just touch him and you're good to go. So they start coming to him. These friends, they take their friend along, this deaf mute man. They're like, just just come with us. They grab him and they drag him to Jesus. They throw him at his feet and say, please, just, just touch our friend. Heal him. And Jesus, he listens and then he takes. The third action, number three, Jesus takes. Jesus takes, just like at the beginning of verse 33, Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself. And stop there real quick. And this, this is really great when you think about it, because here's a man, this deaf, mute man, he's been ignored all his life. People thought he was crazy all his life. They wrote him off. Nobody ever gave him the time of day. How do you communicate with someone like that? You don't know sign language. Just, just write him off. They hear Jesus, he's, he's taking him aside by himself. He's giving him full attention, one-on-one attention. And furthermore, we're going to see Jesus, he wants to try and communicate. He's not just going to, you know, heal the guy. He wants to communicate with him. And it's hard enough. And so the last thing you need is the bustling of the crowd around you. So he takes him aside, gets him alone. But there's even another reason why Jesus wants this guy alone. He takes him by, the, by his self Because Jesus does not want to make his power known. We we know how the story ends. Jesus does heal this man. But at first, he does not want to turn this into a public spectacle. He, He doesn't want people to find out about this. He wants to help this man for his good, for God's glory. But Jesus, he's not looking for more fame. He's not looking for notoriety. He's not looking for a pat on the shoulder or people to know about it. In fact, he'd be perfectly happy if no one ever knew this happened. He just healed the man and he went off. We we already read earlier that he tells the guy, don't tell anyone. He, He wants to keep this under wraps. He doesn't want the crowd to pigeonhole him as a miracle worker, as a mere healer. They already are coming to Jesus thinking he's he's just a healer. But that's not his his real mission. That's just a foretaste of what he really comes to do. He doesn't want them thinking only in that way. And we'll we'll talk more about that later. But we see then for now, he takes a man aside. Just get him alone. Give him his attention. Stay away from the crowd. Takes him aside. And then what happens next is some rapid fire action. I told you that we would look at ten actions of Jesus that changed this man's life forever. Well, we're going to do the next five in rapid fire because that's how they come. Number four, five, six, seven, and eight. Jesus touches, Jesus spits, Jesus looks, Jesus sighs, Jesus commands. One after another. Jesus touches, spits, looks, sighs, and commands. Sounds a little strange, but I'm not making it up. It all is squeezed into verses 33 and 34. Let's read those now. Like at verse 33. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself. And then put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, 
be opened. Like I said, a couple of verses, you got a lot squeezed in. Let's, let's look at it. First, Jesus touches. He's got the man alone. They're standing. They're face to face. But then take, Jesus takes his fingers and he just places them in the man's ears. Like when you hear something really loud, he kind of plugs his ears. And I know you're thinking, that's weird. That's a little strange. Why, why would he do that? It's not nearly as strange, though, as what happens next. It says next that he spits. Jesus spits and then touches the man's tongue. Now you might get the impression that Jesus spit on his hand and then used it and touched the man's tongue with his saliva and that's entirely possible. That may have happened. But the Greek is actually rather vague at this point. It just says Jesus spat and then it says he touched his tongue. So it's very possible that Jesus maybe spat on the ground and then separately touched the man's tongue. But either way, I mean apples and oranges, either way, it's kind of strange. Why is he doing this? I mean, how would you like it if someone came up to you, put their finger in your ear, and then touched your tongue? You would feel very violated. This is pretty gross. I speak from personal experience. I think you can as well. That as a little kid, that's pretty much the worst thing that can happen to you. It's when a parent or grandparent, thinks it's acceptable to use their spit as a cleansing agent. When did this start? How did this become acceptable? And and why do parents still do this? I promise myself and my daughter I'm never going to do it. I'll just go to the bathroom and get some water. There's got to be a better option than using your spit to clean someone's face. It's pretty gross. I mean, how would you like it if someone came up to you and used their spit to rub a little ketchup off your face? It's pretty gross. But thankfully, that's not what Jesus is doing for the man. He doesn't have something on his face. And thankfully, Jesus is also not insulting the man. I think we all know international sign for insulting someone is spitting in their face. But that's not what's going on. Still begs the question, though, what is going on? It's confused some people. They, They don't understand. Well, we know for sure that Jesus, he doesn't need to go through all these motions to heal someone. This isn't a part of healing. We've already seen way too many times, how does Jesus heal people? Just a word. He speaks, you're healed. He's just with a word, he commands, and you're healed. Jesus doesn't even have to be in the same room. You can be miles away. The the previous story, he healed the the woman's daughter long distance with just a word. He's like, okay, she's free, and she was delivered. So this is not a part of his healing ritual. This is not some magical spell that he's doing. It's not a medical procedure. This has nothing to do with medicine. What is Jesus doing? The best explanation is sign language. He's doing a little sign language. He's, in a way, acting out before the man. He's miming for him what he's going to do for him. This man, he can't speak and he can't hear. It is almost impossible. There's no, there's no pen and paper. So it's almost impossible to communicate with the man. But Jesus really does want to communicate with him. He wants to tell him something. He wants to let the man know. He's like, I know you're not crazy. I know you're, you're in there. You're just deaf. You're just mute. And I'm going to do something about it. So he puts his fingers into his ears as if to say, I'm going to do something about your hearing. Then he spits. He touches his tongue as if to say, I'm going to do something about your speech. Through this, Jesus is giving the man an expectation of healing. Because he doesn't really know who Jesus is. How could he know? He gives him an expectation of healing, and he's evoking faith. 
He's starting to evoke faith out of this man. How do you do that for someone who's deaf and mute? Well, like this. What happens next? Jesus looks. Where does he look? Up. Why? Is this necessary for healing? No. But by looking up, he's letting the man know where this healing is going to come from. Where does this power come from? It comes from above. This is divine power that's about to heal you. This is God at work. Next, Jesus sighs. It says he deeply sighs. This man can't hear, but he can read lips. And he can read body language. And through this sigh, Jesus communicates compassion, some pity. This man's pain and suffering becomes Christ's pain and suffering. This is an act of mercy. Jesus, he's always burdened by human suffering when he encounters it. So he feels the pain. He takes it on. And then finally, he commands. Jesus commands. He says one word, ephaphtha, which means be opened. And I have to imagine this guy is reading lips. Maybe he gets it. But this is where the real power is at. This is where it is. It's the command. The word of Jesus. The command of Jesus. When he speaks, whether it's to wind or waves or disease or eardrums, when Jesus speaks, creation listens. What he says goes. He commands anything in creation and it, it just listens. Because he is the creator. We're watching divine power on display. The same power that God displays as the creator. And so after Jesus commands, there's only one result, and it is Jesus heals. Number nine. And we fast forwarded through four, five, six, seven, and eight, but here we're at number nine, Jesus heals. Jesus heals. Look at verse 35. After this command, it says, and his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. So in an instant, immediately this man could hear again. His eardrums became brand new. We don't know if they were divinely replaced or recreated or just fixed. We don't know, but some way he could hear again. And and who knows what sounds first filled his ears? The rustling of the trees, birds in the distance, probably just the crowd around him. But whatever he heard, it was glorious. His friends probably came, chimed in. They start speaking to him. He can hear them. And for the first time in forever, he can hear them and he can respond. After they talk, he just instinctively responds and he he speaks normally, just like you and I would. And they can understand him. You know, if, if there's some medical miracle and a deaf person today regain their hearing, it would still take them months, if not years, of speech therapy to learn to talk. They've got to relearn that whole thing. But this man, he's, he's hearing and he's speaking perfectly, just instantly. This is a, a true miracle of God. Literally, it says the chain of his tongue was broken. Jesus freed him from his afflictions. He, he healed his broken body. And it's not the first time we've seen this. It's not the last. But every time we see Jesus work like this, it's so amazing because... When we see him heal, we're seeing the same power on display that that brought all of the universe into existence. This is just that purest power of God. It's the power to create. And Jesus uses this power to restore a broken creation. 
Now, if you're this man, put yourself in his shoes. You haven't been able to hear or speak pretty much your whole life. So what's the first thing you're going to want to do? We're going to go have a conversation with someone. You're just going to want to talk, hear and talk. That's what you want to do. Just talk to someone. And that's what makes this final action so stunning. Number 10, Jesus orders. And look at this in verses 36, 37. It's pretty amazing. Jesus orders. Verse 36. After healing him, it says, he gave, him, he gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And the way the story ends is kind of ironic, because here's a guy. This guy wanted to speak his whole life, but he couldn't. But now that he can, he can't. Now that he's able to speak, he's not allowed to speak. Now, of course, Jesus is not telling him to to not say anything. He's just saying, don't tell people about the miracle. But you get the point. It's it's kind of ironic. But the man and his friends, they're too excited to follow orders. They just go off. They tell everybody. They can't keep it in. No, they shouldn't have. They should have obeyed Jesus. But it does kind of go and show you that if you've really been changed by Jesus, if he has touched you, so to speak, it's one of those things you just can't keep in. You have to share. It's that powerful, even though they're really without excuse. Now, this man, this deaf man, he may have been the first person that Jesus healed that day. It seems like it. But either way, he and his friends, after this, they run off. They tell people. They go around like, here, here's Gary. Remember, he was deaf. He was mute. But look at him. He can hear. He can talk. And Jesus did this. He just just spoke and he healed him. So they tell people. And what happens? More people go see Jesus. The crowd starts to swell. Jesus probably heals a few more people. He says, you know, don't tell anyone this. They go, they tell everybody. It says more and more people were told. And sooner or later, this big crowd forms. You know, this wasn't his original intention. He did not want this to be a day of public healing. That wasn't the goal. But Jesus, he sees the crowd. He's moved to compassion. And so he's going to meet their needs. He stays. He heals. Not just the deaf not just the mute, but also the blind and the lame. We learn this from Matthew, the parallel. Matthew summarizes the whole thing. He says in chapter 15, verse 30, it says, And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. Verse 31, So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, restored, the lame, walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And like Mark says at his end, they recognize Jesus. He does all things well. He does all things well. He, he rights all wrongs. Everything that's broken, he restores. Jesus is the answer to human suffering. And here we see, we start to narrow in on the significance of our, our passage. Healing the lame, the blind, the mute, the deaf. This is, this is the Messiah's calling card. We've seen this many times in Mark, but every time Jesus does this, he works these wonders, these healings, he's leaving his calling card behind. And that calling card says, the divine Messiah. That's who I am. You want some sign language? These miracles are signs that Jesus is the Savior, the long-awaited 
Messiah. This is what the Messiah was promised to do. And here he is. He's doing it. And we have seen Jesus heal like this many times in Mark before. But what makes this episode so special is that this is the first time we see Jesus minister in mass to Gentiles, where Gentiles receive this healing. And we do know that most of this crowd was Gentiles. When Jesus healed them, it said in Matthew, they glorified the God of Israel. Normally when Jesus heals the Jews, it says they glorified God. But these people, it says they glorify the God of Israel, which is to say, which is to imply that they're Gentiles and they don't normally serve the God of Israel. But now they do after seeing Jesus. So again, Jesus, he's signifying through this that his works, his ministry, it's not just for Jews. He's not exclusive to the Jews. His ministry as Savior is something that's going to reach the world the good news of Jesus Christ, it's meant to cross borders. It's meant to go all around the globe, not just for Israel. The Jews were blessed, but the nations were to follow. Now, I know you know that. And whenever we hear this, we think, hey, we know that's not that big of a deal. Yeah, that the gospel is for all the nations, not just the Jews. Okay, we get it. But you've got to really stop yourself because we take this way for granted we do that because for the past 2,000 years, the church has been almost all Gentile. But at first, it was all Jew. And at first, this, this concept was mind-blowing. The Jews, they thought of Jesus, those who accepted him, he's the Jewish Messiah, and he came for us. He came for Israel. So what's he doing bothering with these Gentiles? Why is he with them? Why is he wasting time with these pagans? But we learned the lesson. Jesus, he doesn't come for the healthy he comes for the sick. And in reality, who's sick? We're all sick. Everybody's sick with sin. But he promises that those who recognize their sickness, who are humble and admit their need, he's not going to turn them away, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you go to him, he won't turn you away. And that's a great lesson. When it comes to Jesus, you've got to think big. His mission. Why did Jesus come to earth? I want you to really think about that question. Why did he come? What was his mission? How deep is your understanding of Christ's purpose on earth? Do you really do you get the big picture? Hopefully, you say, well, he came on earth to die on the cross to pay for sins. That's good. That's true. That's huge. That's important. We're very thankful for that. But he came for an even larger reason than that. Do you know? You think, what's bigger than that? Well, think about cosmic renewal. Jesus, he's the Savior God. He came to right all wrongs, all wrongs that there are in the universe. I want to give you an example of this. Special passage. We've, we've wrapped up Mark. Let me take you to Isaiah 35. If you want, you can turn there. Isaiah 35. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Isaiah chapter 35. And there's a link between our passage in Mark and Isaiah 35. <clears throat> in Mark, a very rare word is used for the man who was deaf and mute. The word is magalalos, which, is, which means unable to speak. And that word is used in only one other place in the entire Bible. It's the Greek version of Isaiah 35 which just so happens to be a very messianic text. 
very messianic text. The first 34 chapters of Isaiah has been all doom and gloom and judgment. And God is speaking his judgment on not just Israel, but all the nations. Because all the nations are unclean before him. It includes Tyre and Sidon and Egypt and Edom and Israel. They are worthy of judgment. But in chapter 35, there's a a hope of, of redemption, restoration, renewal. And notice how this chapter begins. It's a a stark contrast to the wrath that has been pronounced so far. But Isaiah 35, just look at verse 1. It begins, he says, The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom. And think about that. The wilderness, the desert, the Arabah, these are all basically wastelands. They're all complete wastelands. There's nothing good there. But he's saying that they will be They'll be glad. They'll rejoice. They'll blossom. I mean, is that, is that tr- true? That's what's being promised. Look at verse 1, continue. He says, like the crocus, it will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shouts of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. I mean, the picture here, just imagine the Sahara Desert. Wasteland. Imagine it being transformed to a lush rainforest. That's the type of restoration of creation that God is promising. It goes from worthless to fruitful, barren to blessed. Deserts and wilderness, that's, that's everything Israel associated with what's wrong in the world. Deserts and wilderness. These are places of judgment. Deserts and wilderness. But God's saying he will transform them and bring in them blessing. He even includes Lebanon, which that's Tyre and Sidon. That's Gentile territory, by the way. Look at verse 4. He says, Say to those with anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. And so he's saying, look, as the first 34 chapters said, there, there's a big judgment coming. And you are guilty and recompense is coming. Wrath is coming. But for those who trust in God and hope in him, he'll save you from that wrath. And then verse 5. Look at this. These two verses are huge. Verse 5. Then, it says, after this saving, it says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. There's our word, by the way, magalalos. It's in our text in Mark for the mute. But he's saying, look, the blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute, they're all going to be restored. Broken people, restored. Broken land, restored. This is what God is promising to do. And it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. It's a big thing. It's cosmic. Everything wrong in the world, everything from human suffering and calamity and brokenness to natural disasters, wastelands, everything that happened after the fall, Jesus came to fix. That includes human sin, but it it goes beyond. He's going to transform everything. The creation will be set free from sin and its effects. Look at verse 8. He says, to this place of renewal, a highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. Don't you love that? The highway of holiness. 
The unclean won't travel on it, he says. It's only going to be for those who walk in the way, the way of holiness, the redeemed. The middle of verse 9, he says, the end of verse 9, he says, but the redeemed will walk there and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. With everlasting joy upon their heads, they will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. It's all gone. Just think, in your heart, what's wrong with the world? It's suffering. All this suffering. And what, what brings it about? Sin, Satan, calamity, disaster, you name it. God promises, this is just one example, God promises it's all going to get fixed. Everything wrong will be made right. He's going to restore it. And he's going to do it through whom? Through the Messiah. Isaiah, all, the, all over the place, connects the dots that it's the Messiah who's going to come and do this and bring this. That's his mission. And that is Jesus. He's the Messiah who comes, yes, for sin, but for everything. Everything wrong after the fall, he comes to ultimately fix. His mission was previewed during his life. It was inaugurated during his death. And it will be finished during his return. And so a lesson here is to not have too small a view of Jesus. He didn't just come to heal people. Some people today, they're so caught up with with healing. Like that's a big deal. That's nothing. Healing, it's like you're paying attention to the shadow when the substance is over here. His healing was just a foretaste of his power and the transformation that he brings. That's why he kept telling people to keep quiet about his healing. Because that's not the big deal. The big deal is what comes next. His real mission on the cross, his resurrection, everything he brings, that's the big deal. And until his death and resurrection, they had no way of making sense of it. So he said, just just keep quiet. The time will come when you share. That's after the resurrection. But for now, just you can't understand. The only way they could have understood him was as a healer and a miracle worker. And that's just, that's just like 1% of what he does. But after his death, after his resurrection, you see his power is so much greater. He's not here just to heal your body. Because you're going to get sick, you're going to die anyway. He comes way more for, than for your body. He comes to save your soul. That is a greater work. He comes to restore all of creation. A new heavens, a new earth, a weight. It's because of him. It comes through him. He will make that happen. So we have something like deafness. As significant as something like deafness is, Jesus comes to solve even bigger problems. But he also promises an even bigger restoration. Think about God's perfect creation, the Garden of Eden, spoiled by sin. Now we all live in a wasteland. But Jesus comes, he's going to fix it all. But like Isaiah says, like Jesus says, not everyone gets fixed. Not everyone will participate in this restoration. It's only for those on the highway of holiness. So the question is, how do you get on the highway? And the answer is by trusting in the Messiah, in Jesus. He's the one who makes you holy. He puts you on the highway. You don't you can't get on yourself. There's no lane to merge. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't just hop on. You don't find it by accident. He puts you there. He makes you holy and that comes by by you following him, trusting him. 
God sovereignly opens your ears and he enters your heart and he makes you believe and he sets you on the highway. And back in Mark 7, what we see in this man, this man who's deaf and mute and Jesus heals him, really in another way we can think about it as the whole episode, it's like a picture for all of us. It's a picture of what Jesus does for all of us spiritually. Because before God, we're all deaf and mute spiritually. We can't hear God before salvation. We can't hear anything of the truth. And we speak just foolishness and falsehood. But when you go to Jesus, he opens your ears. You're able to finally hear God. And that truth of God finally enters your ear and goes to your heart as opposed to out the other ear. The question is, has that happened to you? Have you heard the word of God? Have you embraced Christ in your heart? Not just in one ear, out the other, but you get it and you follow. That's what he does for us and that's what we have waiting for us, a a new creation, a new hope, a new life, even a new body. Every wrong made right. Deafness, muteness, that shouldn't be. God's creation, he said, it's good, it's very good. There's no place for deafness, for muteness, for everything, every ill. It shouldn't be. Of course, it's all part of God's sovereign plan, but nonetheless, he will right everything. And that's what we have to look forward to in Christ. So live for him that you may share this hope. And then finally, if your ears have been opened, he opens your mouth as well. And so tell other people about Jesus. If you know better, if you know him, then be like these friends who they took their broken friend to the only person who could do something about it. They took their friend to Jesus. Be like that. Just take people to Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. It's the only hope that they have as well. Our joy and the joy of a restored creation, it's expanded as others share in it. So be a part of that. Jesus told this man to keep quiet about what happened to him. That's no longer our standing orders. Now it's time for all of us who have been changed by Jesus to tell everyone what great things the Lord has done for us and how he had mercy on us as well. Let's pray together. Holy Lord, we we proclaim your goodness, your faithfulness now, your greatness and your redemption. You are the God who has saved us. Lord, although it was part of your plan, it was it was the fault of our own sin. Sin, Satan, suffering came into the world. We have ruined this creation. We have fallen short. You are righteous and holy, but we have fallen short of your glory and incurred only wrath and judgment. You would be just to wipe the earth out a million times over. But you provided this hope for redemption, for restoration. Our hearts know what's wrong with the world. Even creation itself, like Romans says, groans and yearns for for change because there's so much wrong with this world. And that's because of sin. Yet you have sent Jesus to, to fix all of that. He comes not just to heal the body, but to save the soul. And not just to save the soul, but to restore all of creation. And we're part of that creation. So we thank you for that. Our eyes are open to this. Our ears open by your grace to hear you, to know you, to see you. And we can only thank you for that. And I pray as, as we think about this man and his friends, we as a takeaway learn to proclaim if our ears have been opened and we get it, if the truth is in our heart, 
That means our mouth is open as well, and it's time to proclaim. It's time to share, to tell other people about Jesus, to bring them to the only one who can do anything about their blindness, their deafness spiritually, and that's him. So may all of us here be faithful in, in telling others what great things you have done for us. You're such a good, amazing, magnificent God who has done so much for us. And how can we keep silent now, especially that we've been told to tell the nations about God and what you have done? We commit to doing that now as we go from here. We all seek your blessing and we seek to honor you as we walk in the way of holiness by your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.